0: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things Human Factors, Psychology, and Design.
1: Hey, it's uh, episode 156. Today's March 5th, 2020, and uh, you're listening to Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined across the interweb wavelengths through the magic of Wi-Fi and technology, by Mr. Blake Arnstrom.
2: I love Wi-Fi. Hey, everybody. How are you?
1: There he is. Hey, I was I was a little worried there. You were cutting out because of the Wi-Fi. Oh, no. That's because never any the, good. Because of the wavelengths. Too um, much oscillation. Hey, Blake. I'm excited because we have some cool news stories to talk about this Do week. Do we? Um, yeah. So, we're talking... The YMCA is trialing these uh, robot lifeguards to prevent pool drownings. Yes. Um British Airways is testing these uh, self-driving wheelchairs at JFK and Heathrow. And we're going to continue our uh, kind of post-mid-commercial deep dive uh, with socializing in uh, kind of this multiverse VR uh, virtual environment bit. I think this is right up my alley, and I'm, uh, I'm really excited to deep dive with you on oh, it. Oh, man, um, all the bits. But But first... We got some programming notes here. So, uh, hey, Human Factors Minute is live now. So this is our new Patreon uh, refresh, if you will. Um, And we still haven't updated our commercial. We're getting to it. Um, But I will say, uh, so Human Factors Minute, what is it? It's a highly produced, highly researched uh, one minute of your time that basically condenses a topic in Human Factors... And neatly packages it for you so that way you can either binge these things or you can, um, you know, listen to them week by week and it's not this huge time commitment for you. It's a little bit more economical for us and it gives you content that you can actually enjoy instead of us just BSing for an hour about, you know... Elon Musk's spaceship or something, and I don't know this is, you' still get access to all those if you're a patreon sub, speaking of Patreon subs, I want to thank our newest patron uh thank you to Michelle Tripp for being our latest patron uh If you want your name read on the show, you can donate to us uh, a dollar gets you into our exclusive slack channel, which is basically like a uh a hotline to the hosts and um you and know also and the other, the other
2: slackers that are in there too that are in the Patreon channel, which is always yeah, slightly. the other patrons.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's where most of the action happens, actually. But uh, anyway, yeah, so thank you uh, to Michelle for being the newest Patreon. Um, so, yeah, if you are interested in Human Factors Minute, please go check it out. Uh, you know, even if it's for a month, check it out. If it's not your cup of tea, uh, then, you know, at least you've helped the show a little bit. Uh, every dollar that we do get through Patreon does go directly back into the production of the show, and uh, helps us you know, kind of improve our setups, improve um, the quality of stuff that we put out there for you, as well as, you know, pays for things like web hosting and and uh, podcast hosting and all that stuff. So anyway, and I'm getting off my soapbox now. Um, up here in a couple weeks, we got uh, CSU Long Beach. I'm the keynote speaker for that, one of them. Uh, there's a couple others. Um, it's going to be talking about making human factors accessible. I am still uh, still need to find out whether or not I can use that audio on the show, but I'm hoping so. Um anyway, why not? Blake, what's been going on? I'm going? sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine too, but I always ask for permission with that stuff because we learned the hard way at HFES uh what is twenty something, we recorded a panel and it was like, well <gasps> you know, I forgot Asper about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so ask for permission first Lesson how learned. funny is that uh, <laughs> Did that like that w-
2: didn't that like happen one year and then like the next year you were at HFFs it was two years doing later doing the
1: oh, was it two years later dang mm-hmm. that's hilarious yeah uh, oh, how times change how times change ask for permission folks in some cases and others just ask for forgiveness but blake i gotta know what's going on in your world Man, not a whole lot of craziness going on
2: over here, to be completely honest. I recently scooped a keyboard after my last week getting really excited about hopping and in, back into Pro Tools and getting really frustrated with software. Um, so I'm just messing around with a little keyboard action, but other than that, everything's been kind of the
1: same. A little bit a little bit of work, a little bit of teaching on the on the side and a little bit of front end development. Any uh any noteworthy things on the keyboard? Is it a special keyboard? You got macros enabled? You got like hot It keys. is. What do you got? Yeah, it's so it's something that I've always
2: wanted to get and so I got like a it's so it's basically a combo between just a regular like I don't know, 25 key keyboard. Plus, it's got, like, a bunch of drum pads attached to it. Ooh. Um, so, it's been... Yeah, it's been a lot of fun to kind of do music production through it. Uh, it's a... What do, you, what do you call it? An Akai Professional MPK Mini. So, it's just small little keyboard that allows you to, you know, switch different octaves and octave sets and then, like, also use that as a drum machine live. So, it's been a lot of fun. But, man, I tell you what, it's been... I don't know, probably 5 years since I've done any real real music production and it's kind of crazy how little the UIs that I was using then have changed at all now. Um so that's just like a space that I feel like is forever needing love of both a human factors engineer and also just UI design in general.
1: Yeah, well, I uh yeah, you know what? It's been a while since I've done I've gotten the music bug, but uh I think I'm looking at this keyboard now. Anyway, we'll put it down in the show notes uh, if anyone's interested um But I I also (laughs) recently made a purchase uh, that was kind of an impulse buy. Um, (laughs) What did you get? Well, I showed you before the show. But uh, so, look, here's the thing. I, man, I got to tell you, some changes have been happening in in, in my world recently. And one of them is kind of, um, uh, it relates to basically organizing my workspaces at home. And... You know, I, I gotta say, like, design with modularity in mind, design with, uh, you know, permanence in mind. If you design with permanence, then you can't really fix things as, you know, your work, as you get to work in this environment, right? Like, for me, I'm building like this mini shop, right? To, to tackle this um, project that I, I mentioned to you uh on the show a couple weeks back where I'm slowly over the course of the year doing these smaller projects that will ultimately end up in a Star Wars control panel, right? And so Oh that's right. So yeah. slowly but surely I'm I'm acquiring all these tools and I'm acquiring kind of um a space to work on this stuff. And, you know, as you start to build this space, you want to make sure that you are providing yourself enough room to adapt to the way that you do things, right? So like if you think about workflow, it's almost like human factors engineering for your environment, right? If you think about a workflow, I know I typically use this thing first, and then I go to this thing, and then I go to this thing. So maybe organize you know, your space uh, accordingly. But um, that's, that's kind of a separate thread from what I'm gonna talk about here. I recently bought, in an effort to organize and uh, um, better, I guess, understand the tools at my disposal, I bought a label maker. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's what that was that you showed me earlier? Was a label? This is, what, That is the this label maker? This is a maker? label maker,
1: yes. Um, it's a, good, it's oh, a good label maker. It's fairly inexpensive, and it, it does a great job. The problem, Blake, is in my head, before I ordered this, I was like, oh, yeah, I can label all these things. I get it, and I'm, like, drawing a blank. I, I honestly don't know what to label now. Um You know, in spite of labeling literally everything in my house, like, I printed one out jokingly and put one on my son the other day and said, baby, um, you know, (laughs) with his name on it. (laughs) And... uh, Of course. You know. uh, But but aside from, like, the obvious things, like my filing cabinet or my tool drawers, you know, like, I don't know what else to label, and I don't know if it is necessary, right? Like, I'm, I'm just struggling. So, like... If you can think of any ideas Blake or the audience listening to this show let me know. I am I I went so far as like looking up labels on YouTube to see what other people have been labeling in shops and uh you know came up short. I don't think there's any real good um labeling videos out there. I did I did know that uh, uh you know I actually found this uh, through Adam Savage. He's the guy who uh did the mythbusters. Of course. For a while he actually labels those power bricks that you get with basically everything so that way if it's thrown in like a, a a box or something you know what it goes to and how much amperage and um you know voltage is is uh is on the thing. So anyway, if if anyone listening uh, I'll I'll put a link to the label maker down below but if uh anyone listening has ideas for labeling um you know I thought about potentially labeling labeling like my cables around here um at the computer area but I, I just don't know i don't know i bought it and I then i was the like Wait, what am i gonna label and there's a there's a ton of things to label i just i'm drawing a blank i had all these things in my head i was like yeah i can label that i can label that um aren't you gonna deal with a fair amount of electronics for your project yeah i am
2: so uh you know well it might be by when you get around there like having all the spare parts or if you end up with like a tackle box type yeah. situation where you've got a lot of pieces that you're putting different places i mean that's something I right labels on i would say like if you used a lot of screws and stuff like I that have, like, yeah i I've I've started labeling say, my screw a boxes box for all that started yeah. labeling
1: my screw boxes for sure um as well as battery uh like uh drawers you know so like triple a batteries yeah that's the way to um, go so yeah so i you're mean not like searching around looking for a battery it's it's incredibly fun and i mean i guess i guess i have labeled quite a bit it's just a matter of uh you know, I, w- I want to label more. I guess that's it, right? I bought this thing and I was like, oh, yeah, I labeled the things that I labeled and now I just, I want to label more. It's an addiction. You want to label and it's, uh. anyway, organize your workspace, folks. That's the <laughs> that's what I'm coming back to. Um, and that's part of it, right? Because the key here is get a label maker and just label, label everything. Label everything, even your children. All right, Blake. Well, if uh, you got nothing else, I think we should jump into some of the news stories this week. <music> All right, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything, uh, we got some AI in there, we have some robotics. As long as you, as long as it pertains to the field of Human Factors, it's fair game for us to sit here and banter about for the duration of the news segment. Blake, what do we have up first this week?
2: Well, this is terrifying. So, drowning is the third leading cause of death by, by unintentional injury with more than, what, 3,200,000. annual. That's insane. Annual fatalities worldwide. In the U.S. alone, nearly 400 people die swimming in pools annually. Corral detection systems in is in business of saving lives. It's Manta 3000 is a nifty ray-shaped uh, on a... Autonomous camera system that monitors swimming pools for drowning victims. (laughs) The Manta 3000 is essentially an entirely self-sufficient pool monitor. Once installed, it surveys the 10 meter by 10 meter area with an underwater camera connected to an AI-powered computer vision system. The AI notices when a person enters the pool and lags them so log and tags them so they can recognize them later as people enter and leave the pool the manta 3000 makes a note that and uses machine learning to learn their face and recognize them if the person's skins sinks underwater and their head remains beneath the surface for more than 15 seconds it lets out an alert if the situation continues it emits an escalating alarms Previously, it was only available for home use, but now the Manta 3000 is being trialed at YMCA locations in the greater Valley area of Pennsylvania in the U.S. Uh, The Morning Call reports that the YMCA will continue testing the device at other locations throughout the country once the trial completes in a few months. Man, this is kind of nuts, and I'm surprised that something like this hasn't been around for a long time, but this is awesome that they've got this kind of Manta 3K system running around using both AI and machine learning to identify drowning
1: victims. Yeah, I think this is really neat. Um, so, I mean, you, you thought this was scary to begin with, uh, but to me, I think this is exciting, right? If you can, uh, part of the problem with lifeguards is that they are, uh, th- they're human, and humans get distracted, especially with prolonged vigilance tasks, which saving lives at a, Pool is and so if you have a uh an artificial intelligence system monitoring this uh pool continuously with the same level of vigilance uh sustained throughout that can be used as an assistant to an on-duty lifeguard this is amazing this is really cool
2: it is really like provides a lot of value for like for saving people's lives and also just making, you know, a lifeguard's job easier so you're not getting a whole lot of false alarms out of it and can allow them to, you know, monitor other situations that may be going on throughout the day. Um, But also I can imagine that, that at some point we almost, Maybe not in just small pools, but like in at big pools that you would see like in the YMCA you may even deploy some kind of like robots that may be, able, may be able to help get people out of pools. So this is a great kind of first step in identifying drowning victims early. And it'd be almost awesome to see like when you get, you know, in the summertime people go into lakes or go surfing and that kind of stuff. If these were, you know, patrolling small areas of, you know, actual ocean or open water. Um, of course, there's more kind of variables to deal with there, but just the general
1: concept is really, really cool. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd like to see something like this, like you said, at like the beach or something. Um, you know, to where it's able to detect it. I think it's installed underwater, though, so there is some trickiness at that. But thinking about just pools alone, I think this is this is great, right? And and um, pulling in some of the other stuff here, uh, you know, it's not the first AI system that. Is designed to make pools safe um but you know like this this is fairly inexpensive um for what it does this is two thousand five hundred dollars um and i know that's not chump change to a lot of folks but to install that it uh in a public facility that's that is chump change right like it's oh absolutely it's an easy sell uh and so that's that's really awesome yeah, I'm surprised they don't have
2: this like in a bunch more places like outside of just the YMCA because if the and I'm assuming that's why they're kind of like trialing it and maybe the YMCA locations in general will start having them. But even like apartment complexes that have pools and stuff like that. I mean, this would be a great thing, especially if you're it's like a family centered community or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, so it, it provides so much value for not very much money when you're t- when you're talking about like the scale at which that it'd be operating at.
1: Yeah. The only like weirdness is like when you uh, when you see no lifeguard on duty at a lot of those like apartment complex pools, um, like uh, you want people to be aware that there is some sort of system surveilling them, um, you know, for their safety. And it's this whole it's kind of that uh, that how much do you tell the people that are subject to the technology? Right. It's it's interesting for sure. Does those do those signs get replaced with no active lifeguard on duty, but AI system is watching you, um, and will absolutely, aloud. yeah.
2: It's kind I of funny you like end up with some sort of like underwater vehicle symbol on the, on those lifeguard posts instead of like showing you know that there's no right. lifeguard on duty or whatever, uh, well, similar to I, kind of like that. What is it that smart city? story that we did so long ago that was talking about like the different levels of surveillance you might encounter depending on where you're in the city.
1: With the icons. Now, the thing that's interesting to me, what do children love to do at the pool? Swim to the bottom and pick stuff up. Well, okay, that that does raise a problem. I'd imagine this would be fixed to the ground, right? But, I would hope so, or else that thing's coming right out of the water. But, yeah, but, I, okay, so let's follow that thread. I was thinking of a separate thread. We'll get to that in a minute. But what happens if, uh, you know, there's occlusion? What what happens if there's a curious child at the bottom of the pool um, right in front of the camera that, in, unless this is multiple cameras, I didn't see... Um, uh, it's a, it's a ray-shaped autonomous camera system, so I guess it might be multiple cameras. I don't know. Is there a video on this? I didn't see. Uh,
2: the image that comes up for it looks like it is. It's got more than one.
1: Yeah, and so, is the sucker
2: um, solar paneled on top of it?
1: Oh, man, this is too much. That's kind of neat. I, we, I guess we should have looked at the actual device. Anyway, that's pretty but, okay, awesome. What is something else that children do? This is something that's you know irrelevant to what the actual system looks like. Children at pool. I'll tell you, Blake, because you have you look perplexed. Children at pools love to go underwater to see how long they can hold their breath. Absolutely, they it's do. a challenge to them to beat their peers. And so, what happens if you have like a lifeless child underwater that's just holding their breath and remaining still to conserve energy? Does it then start to pound the alarm when it's fifteen seconds longer? You know, like probably that's, that's very easy to do. Uh, yeah to hold you could breath, fool it even as a quick. child uh and so like yeah, what does that look like when um children are are doing this type of thing, like can you train the system to understand? What that actually looks like? Why are you laughing? What's going on? <laughs> the, <laughs> the like advertising material for this this software system and
2: the like the ray or the manta itself is hilarious. Um, oh, okay. It's just really, it's just I'm really bad acting. Trying to but watch yeah, it. Yeah, I mean it, it does make sense. The nice thing that we don't have to worry about is kids diving to the end of the pool to go grab it because it is not actually inside of the pool. It looks like it's just hanging out on the corner, hence the solar panels on it. Um, ah. Still, still makes me worry that people just knock it over um, or so hang out in of, a
1: corner and occlude. Right? Yeah. Right. Like,
2: you you still run into the occlusion problem no matter what you do. Um, so that I wonder how they even think about dealing with that problem in general. Because if if something's occluding it, what is it just sending the alarm off because it doesn't really it can't see anything anymore, so it can't make the identification or mark people or tag them as in or out of the pool. Um, but yeah, I mean, still, it's it's pretty great for the amount of money that costs to be able to basically help you determine and monitor if somebody is drowning in your own pool. Um, But other than that, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a little bit of like problems that you've identified that they might want to consider as they go forward. Uh, But still, I I think the, uh, the escalating alarm system and then from there being able to kind of go, go on the, the marketing material for it, like gives it a sense that it's not really about like, I know in the, at least in the story, it's more focused on the YMCA, but like having this at home, like unless you're kind of a certified, either, you know, you know, CPR or whatever, if you pull somebody out of the pool and they've been like having a hard time, you may want to even connect this to like emergency services um, or even have the option to, you know, call somebody quickly based off of if somebody's identified as drowning in the pool, then how much time they stay, you know, in a, a, um, what is it? What would it be? Like a a bad state, like stay at the bottom of the pool for so
1: long. Uh, so I, I think there's a I lot of cool. Out.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's terrifying.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. The, those words right there um, alone are terrifying. Yes. Um, okay. Well, I don't have much more to say about this one. Why don't we go ahead and get into the next news story of the week? Let's go. All
2: right. So British Airways will debate debut <laughs> its self-driving wheelchair trial at Heathrow International Airport in London over the next few months. It recently began testing the devices at JFK International Airport in New York. According to a press release by British Airways, the trials are part of the company's in- involvement in the Value 500 Pledge, a business-to-business initiative urging corporate leaders to provide better services for disabled people. The autonomous wheelchairs are designed to be simple to operate as possible. Users simply sit in the chair, tap a button to indicate where they'd like to go, and they're off to the races. So the wheelchair automatically navigates from point A to point B without intervention from the rider or airport staff. If the user changes their mind, perhaps they'd like to go get a coffee before continuing to their gate. They can change destinations with a tap of the button. So British Airways says that users can change destinations as many times as they want, and once they've arrived at their gate, customers simply disembark the chair and it'll return back to its dock station on its own. This could certainly be a game-changer for disabled customers, and being able to get around an airport without having to ask for people for help or outside of getting directions is a level of freedom that every human deserves to experience. Nick, this seems awesome. I could see myself... like. Really getting too nerdy, nerded out about watching people in these chairs because this would be so cool. <laughs> imagine, I mean, imagine like you watch somebody sit down; they're just like on the way to their gate, just nobody, no help needed, nothing like that, and stop and get a coffee, get back in your wheelchair, and be on your way. It's just such an awesome concept, especially in an airport where it can be really chaotic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm almost tempted to try it myself if I'm ever in one of these airports. Uh, you know, soon um, I would love to. I, I don't know. I almost, on one hand, I feel like this is getting to wally e territory where, you know, if there's enough of these around and if there's enough lazy people, I know this is built for, um, you know, people who don't have the luxury of walking. but if need enough, them. What's that? People that actually need them, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if enough lazy people get around, then m- maybe they use these. And honestly, I'm thinking about From people with, like, severe anxiety, like crippling anxiety, who can't navigate airports, right? Think about how, I guess, uh, how much of a benefit this would be for that person to just sit down and be like, I don't have to worry about people. This thing will take me there. And I know that's not how anxiety works. But it's at least one additional factor that you can kind of mark off the list and say, yes, this is, I'm, I'm going to... Let this thing do its thing. That's true, man. I mean,
2: it, just the – I mean, I know my – this is just like an anecdote, of course, but I, my grandmother was really like – she hated navigating airports, and as she got older, it was harder for even her to walk and do those kind of things, and we still made trips across you know, to Ireland and things like that. So that's a long trip navigating, you know, anywhere from two to three airports. And so having something like this where, one, she doesn't actually have to ask for help and have, feel like somebody feels sorry for her that's pushing her around, whether it's a family member or somebody that actually works for the airline. And, like, having the freedom just to, like, hop in the chair and basically tell it where to go without having to do anything more than that and just not having to deal with people and not having to feel like, you know, any of the... Adverse effects of asking for help uh, I think it just provides a like a I I hate to phrase it this way but like a different level of user experience that people with disabilities or people that are older and how they experience air travel because I mean uh, imagine like how the, the pains that we already feel from like going through security having to check your bag. You know, going through the regular stuff you do when you go to the airport, but on top of that, if you have a disability or you're old and it's hard for you to navigate around these really large mammoth places, I mean, something like this can just make the experience a whole lot more accessible for you.
1: Oh, yeah, I 100% agree. I think, uh, you know, what's interesting to me is um, kind of what British Airways' plan is, um, and, and it's something that we see every day in Human Factors. Uh, they're planning to basically um, try all this stuff out and gather more feedback, explore basically this introduction with uh, the technology to these airports um, alongside their customer service professionals, right? So they're seeing how basically the role of the customer service professional changes uh, as this technology is introduced. Um, and, uh, you know... Th- I think the, the the demand for air travel, especially for those that are... Uh, so, so like my grandma, I, I'm going to get into the aned- anecdote now. You just told one, I'm going to tell one. My grandma just traveled down here to see her great-grandson, um, and one of the biggest hurdles was the airport. Um, that was a large reason why... Um, you know, we weren't sure if she was going to make it over here is because navigating two airports, one on either end, and then a return trip um, for someone very old, very fragile, uh, can be kind of a um, daunting thing. But you know, the more things that you kind of alleviate along the way, I think, is is uh, it's going to have a big impact, especially, you know, it makes the world that much smaller, even if it's... Um, just at the airports, right? Like it is making the world more accessible to people, and I think that's awesome.
2: Absolutely, man. I'm and I'm glad that it's kind of British Airways that's doing it because I know they deal with a lot of international travel, so it's kind of those those harder, you know, to sit through flights yeah. and stuff like that, and I and they're. From my experience, anyway, I've always had, like, a really good experience with the airline in general from its customer service to the actual flights to any of the, like, end-to-end booking stuff. And, I mean, even from the process you just described that they're employing to see, like, if we introduce this kind of technology, how does it impact the people that we employ? How does it change customer service for British Airways and the people that we have working in our departments uh just I don't know, it just kinda of speaks speaks volumes for how the companies run and potentially they like have kind of a human factors or user centered design department that kinda of helps put this stuff together. So that's cool to see.
1: Yeah, and I mean like you were saying about the international flights, this is at two of uh basically the hubs, right? Like JFK and Heathrow. So um, Oh yeah. Yeah, you'll see you'll see a lot of people pass through there and this'll just kinda of make especially international travel that much easier. Uh, I don't have much else to add to this one. I think I'm good, man.
2: I'm just—I'm really excited to see one in person and just watch somebody using it.
1: What if you used it for the show? For the show, I really
2: yeah. want to use it. Like, I want to sit down and just like take a Instagram video of me just using this thing because I think I'd be just losing my mind. You get anxious. How in airports, cool it right? is!
1: I do, absolutely. There you go. There you go. You're you're qualified. Um, I'm not big on like big crowds of people for sure. It's for science and it's for a, a larger audience. Anyway. Okay, science. well we are gonna <laughs> we are gonna take a quick break and we'll be back to take our deep dive right after this short break.
0: Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is one hundred percent listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors, etc., we're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com/slash-human-factors-cast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends.
1: Yes, uh, and we are back. I just want to remind everyone that not only do you get access to all that stuff, but again, we're still waiting to update our commercial. You do get access to Human Factors Minute as well. It's brand new, hot off the presses. Uh, And uh, I don't think I mentioned this at the top, but we do have content for an entire year already produced. It is already up there, just waiting for it to... uh, Just waiting for it to drop. We have everything scheduled. It's all good to go. So you are guaranteed content for the next year at least. And we are adding stuff to it before every show. So if you're doing the math here, we're basically coming up with enough for uh, years to come. So uh, if you're a Patreon supporter, look for that. If you're not, consider supporting us. Anyway, before we continue, I just want to thank all of our friends over at The Next Web and TechCrunch for all of our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, we do post those on our Slack as we find them, uh, and that distributes them to social media, so you can follow us there as well. And we do post the links to the original articles, so uh, go check those out. All right, so we got uh, we tried this last week. We kind of did this deep dive with uh, Deception and AI, and I thought we'd do it again this week because I really liked that. I I thought that was a fun kind of thing for us to sit down and do. And uh, so uh, why don't we go ahead and get into the deep dive this week. All
2: right, so this week... Courtesy of TechCrunch, they have a series of articles looking at the next stage of social media and what this future will look like. So the question was raised, if video games have been massively popular for many years, why hasn't this shift to online virtual worlds as mainstream social hubs on par with Facebook and Instagram already happened? The thought of virtual worlds for socializing evokes, evokes second life, so launched in 2003, where users created unique avatars to socialize, build, and trade with each other. Second Life is still around, but only a few hundred thousand of of users are still active. So EVE Online is another long-running open-world MMO where the experience is shaped by users' contributions and social interactions. It's really cool. It's been the subject of numerous studies on economics and psychology, given the depth of its data on the human interaction, but it still remains niche as well. The popularity of Roblox, which has surpassed 115 million active users and 40 million user-centered experiences in August, and Minecraft, which has surpassed 112 million active users, shows that this movement is gaining traction in a bigger way amongst the younger generation of internet users. There still are both technical reasons and cultural reasons why participation in virtual worlds will finally go massively mainstream in the next few years. So, Nick, this is kind of a realm that you have a little more insight to than I think I do, for sure. Um, it's it's funny that they mentioned Second Life, because I remember that coming out in, like, 2003. But So, do you participate in any kind of virtual worlds like these that they talk about?
1: In the massive scale? Uh... I think, I think any of these, like, online video games, right? Like, even Fortnite. And I think, you know, as much as people kind of shit on Fortnite and as much as it's fun to poke at the, the kids these days doing the fork knife, um, you know, I think it's... I love Fortnite, though. I, I mean, like, look, as, as fun as it is to poke at it, like, it's doing something amazing. It is basically... Uh, a living, breathing world in a virtual environment in which, you know, there's there's a goal of killing everybody, but the, you know, or survival. I guess the goal is technically survival. Um, and you know, it, it's basically incorporating all these cultural touchstones into it, right? I mean, you had the Avengers crossover. You had a Star Wars crossover. You have all these bits and pieces of elements coming into these things to the point where we're having special exclusive in-game events like the Star Wars event, right? Everyone kind of gathered around this platform, and you saw the Millennium Falcon, and JJ Abrams showed up in in video game form, and showed a clip from the movie in the video game. Yeah, and it was it was kind of a cultural gathering of folks, uh, and I think that's the closest we're kind of getting to this, um, you know, online shared universe. And and of course, those are all instanced, but you know, we can. I do want to mention a couple things. Uh, as we talk about this, I want to make sure we touch on like cloud-based computing because that is uh, um, that is one kind of roadblock. But uh, I don't know, Blake. Like from your perspective, I oh, oh to answer your question, no, I don't really participate in it other than like video games that are instanced, uh, and you are dealing with just a couple different players, and it is themed around a certain video game or something, but. I think what this is asking is why don't we have a virtual world in which we socialize with other people? Like how come I don't hang out with you and a couple of your office mates, you know, in a virtual environment. Um, and, and, uh, wh- why doesn't that exist? You know, so yeah. I think cause social media exists. You can interact with folks on social media. But I think it's different. Well, I think right? it's
2: it. Well, in some ways, I think Instagram has a little bit of this. It's not so much a like an all the time social world. But I know you can do like like you can. I don't know. I've seen Aubrey Marcus do a couple of these where you do an Instagram live video and people join in and they can ask questions actively, and it's it's kind of moderated because you you on the other end get to control like I guess how people interact with you. But there's to some degree that exists a little bit. Um, but I like you have really only experienced a lot of this like virtual world social interaction through video games, either it being like, wow, or call of duty, um, wow, more so kind of in this context, we right. were actually socializing versus just like playing a game together. Um,
1: but it, and I mean, yeah. there's been, there, there's, I'm going to jump in here. There's been a lot of like studies done on sort of the cultures that evolve in these, Massively multiplayer online games. And we're talking about virtual worlds here. We're not talking about VR, which is something slightly different, right? I I, I tend to uh, make the connection with a headset. You're in VR with virtual worlds. It's any sort of 3D-generated world in a in, on a computer or something, um, just for the uninitiated. But uh, thinking about, like, these MMOs, there have been studies done that say, you know, long after the game has worn out its welcome... People stay because of the culture, because of the people, because of, like, the guilds and whatever that that they've established in this environment, and a lot of people just log on to hang out with their friends, Um, and I know that's true for, like, a lot of other games, too, right? Call of Duty's a shooter, but you can hang out with your friends and just shoot things. Um, oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah, you get in the lobby, and it's just like you're – it's kind of like spending the evening together. Like you lobby up, and then you join a party or whatever, and then it's just you guys kind of like hanging out, shooting the shit the entire night.
1: Right, and it gets to be a point where it's not even about the game anymore. It's just about hanging out and chatting, right? Yeah, and so, I mean, that was a
2: big deal for me when I moved, like, from Alabama to California. Like, that's kind of how I f- stay connected with friends was playing Call of Duty and or playing Gears of War or whatever, basically just hopping on Xbox and, you know – sending a text saying, like, hey, let's play video games together because I don't get right. to see any of my friends anymore type of thing. So it was like a way of keeping connection to home. So it's it's an interesting kind of thing to think in retrospect now.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I I know there's been studies on that. You know, Some of the technical reasons, and this is getting back to my whole point with cloud-based computing, some of the technical reasons uh, have largely been because you can't afford a machine that is able to do it's able to produce these virtual environments, right? So, like, you can't buy, you can, you you don't have enough money to afford, like, a computer, a high-end computer that can uh, render games, or you don't have a a video game console that can do it. Um, And with things like cloud-based computing, with Stadia, uh, with GeForce Now, with, um, you know, Microsoft and Sony, they're all coming out with these solutions for cloud-based things, and a lot of them don't even require you to have... Uh, any sort of like device on your end except for a screen or something to receive the signal, so that could be a basic laptop with you know any any of these apps installed. it could be a chromecast it could be literally your phone uh the thing that you have in your pocket uh can can play these high end games and all you need is a controller um and so i I don't know i think I think things are changing I think we're getting to the point where we can start to look forward and say, okay, well, with with the technology becoming less of a barrier, it's now that social aspect, right? And thinking about things culturally, like I, there's still a stigma about video games. Uh, it it has been out there pretty hard, and so you know, by by association, anything that's a virtual environment is going to be stigmatized too, right? Because you you think, oh, people are. Wasting their lives away in these video games when, in fact, you know, it's a it's an exercise in cognitive function hand eye coordination, um, you know, and a lot of these like professional video game athletes actually have workout regimens and are, in my opinion, setting a good example for youth. Right. Like they actually work out. They actually eat healthy um, and they are professional athletes in the sense in every sense of the word, except they're using their hands and fingers and their mind instead of their arms and shoulders and legs and back in different, you know, in a ball. So uh, that's kind of how I see it. Um, so I think we're slowly changing culturally too to become more accepting of, of uh, the mainstream stuff. And I, I think because that technical barrier now is down or is close to being widely accessible to everybody, I think we're very close to um, breaking that cultural barrier as well. I don't know. What What are your thoughts on all that?
2: I just I don't think we're as far away from it as maybe people think we are. And the the cultural stigma part, like I don't know how that's going to dissipate, right? Because there's there definitely still is like an image of what a video gamer is, um, and then the reality, I guess, of like especially when you see people that like stream on Twitch that are paid to do it, they do have kind of a more professional aspect to it. I mean, like Ninja, for God's sake, is sponsored by Adidas and shoots commercials with, you know, like, David Beckham and things like that. And he does, like, he takes his, his career seriously and things like that as well. But, I mean, the I think it's all about the interface at this point. Because right now, if you really think about it, there's a lot of people that interact, like, mainly through some of these social media outlets where it's through their phone. And it's not specifically, like, the way that you would define a virtual world, but it's getting pretty close where they're not really interacting with as many people in the, like, face-to-face context anymore. It's through these different like throughput mediums, whether it's like video or it's, you know, posting pictures and commenting on things. I think it's like as that continues to progress – Whether this is some like intersection of like we have this kind of stuff that's put in our glasses now. So it's even a little closer to being, you know, always available. So you're living almost in this quote unquote virtual world that you're experiencing through your own glasses or whatever it may be. I think the stigma part's going to go away as technology gets more embedded in, in people's lives and more so than it is now where it's not just a phone. Maybe it's a phone in your glasses and maybe that steps up from just that to being a BCI in your brain or whatever it may be. Um, I think it'll take time, but ultimately having people spend time in these rooms. I mean, it it was something similar that we talked about in Slack or or Slack earlier that that Mateo had suggested about like how we can, you know, enhance engagement in Slack. And it was like, well, let's, let's have chat rooms that are specific to specific topics or let's, you know, all meet in Slack and have a conversation one evening. Like it's it's getting yeah. closer that you. That's how you're going to connect with people across the world or across the, you know, continent you live on. I think it's just it, is it going to jump into a virtual world right away? I'm not really sure. But then I think the the definition of a virtual world is should be a little bit loose in this sense because like if we all were hopping on a Slack call or like how you and I do this podcast where. We're, like, people don't know it, but we're sitting here video chatting the entire time. I mean, that's not really that different from... It is a virtual you know, world. I'm looking at yeah. you in
1: a virtual world. Your ver- your world, to me, is virtual. My world, to you, is virtual. And I think, yes, breaking down what it actually means to be a virtual world, uh, you know, and it's, it's well-defined in a lot of literature, but, you know, it, it is basically any time you can transport yourself, either, uh, you know, cognitively or physically into a different environment that is a a virtual world right so even storytelling when you are wrapped up in somebody's story living in your imagination that is a virtual world um so i mean like to me what do these social spaces look like and what's going to be the first big thing that really takes off and you know i i can i can i can throw down some ideas um you know uh, to me what would What would be interesting is some sort of social space where, like, let's say, for example, you are already building uh, bits and pieces of this, right? Like, let's take Facebook and Instagram, right, owned by the same company. Now, what if you add a virtual world to this where you've taken these pictures and you have your own space, uh, a virtual 3D space, like a room that you can basically... Put these things in right, like like almost a museum. Like, hey, look, this is my trip to uh, to the zoo, right? And you can see all the animals; they're right there on my wall. I've put them there. I, I, the user have have put these pictures here because I like the way they are organized in this 3D space. And you, Blake, you can come into my 3D space and you can look at this. And well, like, you, can, you can even
2: take that a step further. I mean, it could be a way that you're... Because like, I know, Insta, let's say Instagram, they take video of it, but what if you were always able to capture the video of the things you were seeing through your eyes? I mean, that could basically be right. letting somebody experience your physical
1: memory, but through just like video, basically, in this kind yeah. of projected space. Now, hang on. I'm going to go a little deeper here, because Facebook and Instagram are owned by the same company. Now, wh- what if within that room, you have your pictures, but also... Hanging out on your uh, on your little desk there, it's a little journal with all your Facebook posts that someone can just walk up to and read. You know, it's like it's like snooping in somebody else's environment. Um, and that's that's weird to me almost. It's like you can see who is snooping in your room, and it's like it's you can almost gamify it, right? Like if I can sneak into their room and see without them seeing me, like you know, and then there's all these privacy concerns you know you have a locked door for people you don't want coming in um and so i i don't know something like that might be possible i just don't know <laughs> you know like what that looks like customizing your avatar to look like you or your idealized version of you could be something i'm i'm trying to think of like the transition what's going to be the thing that gets people in the door to this virtual environment social experiment thing that is basically you know where everyone's living like second life but everybody um
2: yeah i don't know i I think at this point it's still much more of a hard sell just because it's like getting people in that space so how do they how do they experience it right now and i think that's that's i think like companies like google that with their experiment with kind of stadia are moving towards that like really pushing the boundaries of cloud computing and what this can do and how high fidelity it can be. And then I would say like companies like because there's a San Diego and Finnish based company called Cast that is similar to like what Twitch does, except for it's meant for social gaming and social like watching movies across continents
1: and stuff like that with people. Right. What if you go to a virtual movie theater and watch with your friends? Like,
2: yeah. I mean, I think that kind of stuff, like smaller events that you can do with friends, and like getting more of that stuff online, that'll probably ultimately be really the impetus for how do you actually get a lot of people into this. Because um, I, I think a lot of people are working on, or companies are probably working on, or you know, investors are speculating what's the next big social media push, and I feel like it's it's got to be in a virtual environment at some point. Whether that's soon, I don't know.
1: Now, one other point uh, I wanted to make is, um, you know, if you think about virtual environments and, and doing these types of activities in them, whatever it is, it has to be ubiquitous. It has to be easy for the user to do, right? You can't spend a lot of time creating an environment. The interface has to be easy. I want this thing here in this environment. I want to move my avatar there. You can't expect everyone to be able to pick up a controller and move their avatar about. Um, and, you know, I think one of the technical barriers is the ability to graphically render these environments. But then another technological barrier is the complexity of control um, and manipulation of 3D objects on a 2D space. So that's another challenge that will have to be overcome it has to be as easy as, like, share this on my space, know exactly where I want it in my space. Like, an AI can help with that. But I think all that has to be considered and all that has to be ironed out for something like this to be successful.
2: I feel like that's a great entry point for something like voice technology that's a little more integrated and, right. and you know, that grows and it's a little bit better because you're in a virtual environment, like, gesture based stuff can get you pretty far but i think ultimately if you're able to like kind of talk out loud say how i want things to render in my space how i want myself to look turn left turn right that kind of stuff i feel like that helps you in a lot of ways not have to be doing a whole lot of movements you're basically just talking within the space and then experiencing it
1: yeah well i i like that deep dive i thought that was kind of fun um what did you guys think? And what what are your ideas for what would make a like what would make you want to join a virtual world, virtual space, something like that? Let us know in uh I, I feel like one of those YouTubers. Let us know in the comments down below. But uh join us on our Slack. Uh have a conversation with us. I'd love to hear more about this, uh especially being a VR geek myself. Um what other people think of this. And if you guys have any ideas for next week's deep dive, please let us know. We are we're trying out this deep dive thing. Also, let us know what you think of this. I, I think uh, it's it's fun for me and Blake, but if it's not fun to listen to, if, it's, if this deep dive doesn't really seem that deep to you or whatever, you're just not interested in it, let us know too. That's valuable feedback. Um, okay, Blake, well, I think we got a couple it minutes left, from- so why don't we get into this next part of the show. From- That's right. It came from Reddit. Now, this could be... Reddit. This could be Twitter. This could be anything, really. We, this is where we search all over the internet to bring you all topics that the community is talking about. Now, anything, any topic is fair game for us to talk about uh, because it's human factors, and we want to know what human factors people are like. What kind of questions are people asking? Right. So uh, this week, um, we have uh, I, we have one, we have one this week, and it's from it's from Reddit. Nice. Jump into this one. Now, this one kind of relates to something that we talked about a couple weeks ago. What does a human factors practitioner look like? Uh, And that was from the HFES member forum. Now, this one is uh, HCI versus HF. So that's human-computer interaction versus human factors. This was actually posted on the human factors subreddit, so I want to make sure we credit them. Um, This is uh, what things to keep in mind when deciding between a human factors degree and a human-computer interaction degree. Uh, Do you think graduates of both are interchangeable in terms of jobs? Would an HCI graduate be eligible for positions titled human factors engineer or ergonomist in fields predominantly dealing with hardware aspects? Um, And uh, this user here. Oh, I didn't say the user. I should probably do that. This is by Oksana Astentkova. I probably butchered that, but uh, anyway, uh, this user also goes on to say, I know human factors graduates often work as UX researchers. What level of technical knowledge would be expected as a prerequisite to achieve or to, uh, an average HCI program? Are psychology graduates with no programming skills, calculus knowledge common in HCI graduate programs? Now you and I both did not attend HCI graduate programs, but I do want to talk about this question, Blake. Um, So I I want to pass it over to you. Let's just kind of address this question by question. What should you keep in mind when deciding between a human factors degree and a human computer interaction degree? And what is the difference to you? Sure, I, I'm. I'm gonna be honest. I don't. I
2: don't have an answer for this first one because I actually don't know. It wasn't until after I had got my degree and finished my like human factors program. Now, keep in mind, I, I had not heard of human factors throughout my undergraduate work. I didn't have undergraduate training, and it just heard of it at the very end. And I had not seen human computer interaction degrees until after I was out in the working world. So I'm actually not sure, really, what draws a line between them because i know people that i work with that have an hf hf degree in psychology versus engineering and i know some people that have like the hci degree and we do similar things but i'm not sure what the kind of dichotomy
1: is well let me let me try to at least uh put it from my perspective here so for me i think hci is more focused on like the computer side of things where we're looking at software digital interfaces um you know, and I think human factors is more broad. You can apply that to the design of physical objects. You can design systems thinking about human factors. And so I think it's just a matter of um kind of uh where the focus lies. I don't I don't want to overgeneralize. If anyone listening is in a human factors uh program and or an HCI program and thinks any differently, I mean it, it, he Blake and I are both human factors background. So In terms of HCI, I I feel like that is probably more focused on software, uh, probably a little bit more designy. If I had to take a guess, uh, to give you that kind of well and a little bit more Cody, to give you that well-rounded kind of um, software approach. But that's just my educated guess. Um, Now, do we think these are interchangeable in terms of jobs?
2: I think they. In my experience they have been. Like I know people that work as a human factors engineer with an HCI background, people that work as, you know, a computer work in computer scientists work as computer scientists or work with them developing software that have human factors backgrounds and HCI minors. So I'm not really sure if there is a determined difference between the two when you're term in terms of jobs, but I think as she goes on to talk about or he or she goes on to talk about um, you you may end up kind of getting similar roles, like if you ended up in a user researcher role, if you're an HF graduate or an HCI graduate. I've definitely seen both degrees in both, both of those positions. Um, so I would assume they're interchangeable in terms of jobs, but I, it probably depends
1: on what your interest is and how you want to apply what you know. Maybe unpopular opinion time, and I know a lot of people have uh, really strong opinions on their skill sets and everything, but I think it's all a matter of how you swing it, right? If you say... You know, hey, I went to an HCI program. I basically did human factors for uh, digital interfaces, and so I can probably pull some of that towards, uh, you know, this physical device or whatever it is. I I think I think there's a lot of overlap, and I don't, I wouldn't say that. You know, maybe the skill sets differ slightly, but it's all a matter of how you spend what you know and what how what you know uh sort of applies to the job that you're looking for. Um so I I would say there's probably a lot of overlap and I wouldn't worry too much about it. Again, it just kind of comes down to what ultimately you want to do. If you're if, if you know you want to work on software, then maybe go for HCI. If you know if you don't know, then maybe go for human factors. Maybe that's more broad and <laughs> gives you more flexibility, you know, in the long run. Um, but maybe you have to work harder to catch up on things like designing and coding um, knowledge. I don't know. Um, okay. Let's see here. So, in terms of interchangeability, we covered that. Uh, what about um, level of knowledge? So, we can't really talk to this last point because neither of us have gone through an HCI program. Um, but, uh, you know, no programming skills, calculus knowledge common in HCI graduate programs. I don't know. I haven't heard of any, like, high-level math other than statistics in graduate programs, especially focusing on things like uh, the the human factors or, or um, human-computer interaction. I wouldn't imagine so. Uh, but maybe in coding classes, maybe you get that. I don't know.
2: It might depend on the speciality, right? Because there's different requirements if you go to like a human factors program that's like within industrial engineering or in an engineering school versus if it's in a psychology program. So there might be like different requirements in that yes. case. This sounds very specific, so it almost sounds like it is it is program specific. Although it is, it is a question because um, I, I the the one or two people I know for that have degrees in informatics and then. Uh, hci they had psychology backgrounds previously they don't code one does have some data science skills that they picked up on their own um, but they didn't have a whole lot of like intensive calculus knowledge um so i'm I'm not sure it probably is gonna be program specific and if you're looking for a more engineering side of a like graduate program you likely may have to know a little bit of that um on the thinking on the calculus side, programming side, I think that I'm not really sure how that plays in HCI, and that makes me very curious to look into it.
1: Well, why don't we go ahead and look into it? Um, and do you have anything else to add on this topic, Blake?
2: That was kind of a great question, though. I'm That's glad that they question. asked it because I, I really don't know the difference, and I feel like I should at this point.
1: Yeah. All right. Great question. All right. Well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news stories this week. Did you enjoy that deep dive on virtual worlds and social spaces? Let us know. You can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us all over our social channels at H Factors Podcast. If you want to send us an email, if you're too bashful to uh, write us, you know, publicly, you can write us privately at show at humanfactorscast If you like what you hear, want to support the show, you can leave us a review on whatever podcast medium of choice as your favorite or consider supporting us on patreon if you can't tell blake and i are very excited about human factors minute it is a kind of passion project for us you know and i think that really comes through with the level of editing and care that we have put into these episodes uh so please consider supporting us on patreon like i said every dollar goes back into the show um you know what and of course you can always reach us on our home on the web HumanFactorsCast.com. To thank Mr. Blake arnstorff for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about our robot pool overlords? Guys, if you
2: want to talk about that Monta 3K, you can always find me in the Human Factors Cast Slack, but you can also find me everywhere across social media, including LinkedIn, at Don't Panic UX.
1: As for me, I have been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time,